Hi, this is Julie in Vienna, Virginia. I've just released three pounds of honeybees into their new hive, and I'm having a great time watching them settle into their new home. This podcast was recorded at... 12.06 p.m. Eastern Time on Friday, March 24th of 2023. So things may have changed by the time you hear this, but I will still be busy as a... Well, you know. (laughs) I will say, we're not far from Virginia, but just hearing that ambient sound out there. It sounded so much warmer where she was than this drizzly rain we have here. What a great thing right as we're coming into allergy season people don't realize, but <laughs> local honey can help your allergies. I didn't know, know that. Yeah. yeah. Well, there you go, Dominico, with the useful news you can use. Hey there, it's the NPR Politics Podcast. I'm Asma Khalid. I cover the White House. I'm Claudia Grisales. I cover Congress. And I'm Domenico Montanaro, senior political editor and correspondent. And today on the show, we're going to begin with some reporting from Florida and the state's Republican governor, who has become a leading culture warrior for the GOP. This week, there was news that Ron DeSantis' administration is planning to forbid any classroom instruction on sexual orientation or gender identity, all the way up through senior year of high school. This would expand upon the controversial law the governor signed last year that banned such instruction from kindergarten through third grade. DeSantis is expected to run for president. And Claudia, you have just returned from a reporting trip to Florida. So before we dive into specific questions, I'm just very curious what you heard from voters about him. Yes, it's really interesting. I spoke to a lot of Latino conservative voters in South Florida, in Miami-Dade County, and they have a lot of excitement, a lot of energy for Governor DeSantis. In in particular, they're excited about his approach to a lot of these culture wars. They really related to a lot of that. It was interesting. Some would say that they were former supporters of ex-President Trump, but now they're moving on to the Florida governor because they see Trump is weakened, whether it's by Democrats or by Trump's own hand, and they see the Florida governor as a stronger figure. And he's bringing that same message, they say, of I alone can fix this. And so that ability to stand up, that reminded them of the kind of forceful kind of language they would like to see used by a president against a lot of these regimes in Venezuela, Cuba, or other Latin American countries. Along those same lines, I spoke to a professor at Florida International University, Professor Eduardo Gamara, and he was telling me how popular this Florida governor has become among these Latino voters in particular. You didn't see that kind of influence when he first ran for governor, but you could see that in the reelection. You know, Colombians had shifted way to the right, not as the, the Venezuelans, not as far. The Cubans had shifted right. And that what unified them all was this enormous support for DeSantis. And so what he's talking about is findings from a poll they conducted more than a year ago, talking to different Latinos about how they felt that the Florida governor was doing in terms of different issues. And he said a lot of them would repeat a lot of the same lines from the governor, clearly showing they're aligned and on the same page with him. That's so interesting because it sounds almost like they moved to the right because of DeSantis's persona, because of who he has been as governor. I mean, is that what you're hearing from voters? You know, I think that they're meeting together at the right place at the right time. I mean, there was depressed voter turnout. We should note that in Miami-Dade, especially when we talk about Democrats. But these conservative Latino voters, what I heard a lot from them is they 
felt abandoned by Democrats. They felt like Republicans were doing a better job, especially paying attention to the issues in Latin America and some of these regimes that they're really worried about. One of those voters I talked to was Mario Sanchez. Um, he was telling me what a big fan he is of the Florida governor. Yo pienso que este debe ser un país fuerte y unido. Y la intención demócrata a veces veo como, como que divide en el país. And so what he's saying there is that Democrats spend a lot of time talking about things that do not exist, like racism. He's, he doesn't believe that that is an issue in this country. Rather, he, this is a Cuban-American who was talking about focusing on patriotism, on how to unite the country, and at how to keep us all Americans on the same page, rather than focusing on the differences. And that's what's made him such a big fan of Governor DeSantis. I think it's really indicative of the line that DeSantis has been trying to walk, and it's going to be a really interesting hurdle for him in the 2024 presidential election if he does decide to get in. Because, you know, we're seeing that there's something like half of the Republican Party base is open to someone other than Trump. He's sort of running in the same lane as Trump, making an appeal with this culture warrior tactics to voters who uh, don't have college degrees, who make less money, when really he needs to also be able to pull over enough of those white-collar Republicans who do have college degrees and make more money. I'm struck hearing you say that there's this fine line DeSantis has to walk on some of these culture war issues because it seems like broadly the Republican Party seems to think that this is a winnable issue for them. I mean, you look at what happened in Congress today, House Republicans just a bit ago passed this legislation dubbed a parent's bill of rights that would, among other things, inform parents if their kids changed pronouns in school, um, what books, for example, are held in school libraries, etc. And and it seems like they think that this is a potentially really popular issue for them. They definitely see this as a wedge issue, as a way for them to get in on being able to split or divide Democrats um, and try to win over some independents. And I think as Claudia is talking about with a lot of the Latinos in South Florida, you know, this really does appeal to some of them because they're more culturally conservative. And that message has been really pushed by Republicans. Uh, and they have some polling on their side. I mean, if you look at the 2020 midterm elections, mm -hmm. the exit polls there, they asked our society values on gender identity and sexual orientation, changing for the worse, changing for the better or not getting better or worse. And, you know, half said that they're changing for the worse. 26 percent said they're changing for the better. Um, that included about 20 percent of Democrats who said that they're changing for the worse. Clearly a big split there and divide. Was this nationwide exit polling? Or that was nationwide polling? exit Nation. polling um, overall. Now, when you drill down to what they're doing in Florida specifically. In Florida itself, uh, there was a Siena poll last year that showed that uh, you know, more than two-thirds of Republicans were in favor of the bill that DeSantis had pushed for uh, in limiting the kind of discussions about gender and sexual orientation in schools. Mm -hmm. uh, about a fifth of Democrats were in favor of that. When you look more broadly, though, nationally, it's more split. You have 51% of Americans supporting banning teachers teaching about sexual orientation or gender identity from K to three. Now, 
If that goes further, which it looks like DeSantis certainly thinks that he's got the ability to potentially push on, he's doubling down here. I don't know. There hasn't been any polling yet to show how people would feel about that all the way through 12th grade. But it's certainly one of those culture issues that Republicans have decided to really try and and home in on. Now, the difficulty for them is does it play in a general election in the same way it will in a primary? All right. Well, Claudia, thank you so much for all this reporting. We'll talk to you in a bit for Can't Let It Go. Great. Thanks. And we'll be back in a moment. Time for a quick break. And we're back and we're joined now by Shannon Bond, who covers disinformation here at the network. Shannon, hey, it's good to have you with us. Glad to be here. And you've been looking at how easy and accessible the tools have become to create fake synthesized audio and video of real people. You know, so for instance, fake videos, uh, for example, of President Biden announcing a military draft. That's right. I mean, I think anybody who's been, you know, vaguely following the news probably knows there's been just these like crazy developments in AI and artificial intelligence that we've been seeing rolling out. And so there's just there's all kinds of ways now to make essentially artificial content and really really you know, striking example um, was this this fake video of Biden. It's what's known as a deep fake. And it was made by the right wing activist Jack Posobiec. He's he's known for promoting probably best for promoting the Pizzagate conspiracy theory. Right. And so he created this video, this fake video, you know, looks like Biden speaking and it really sounds like Biden. It, you know, used this technology to basically to clone its voice. I have received guidance from General Milley, chairman of the Joint Chiefs that the recommended way forward will be to invoke the Selective Service Act, as is my authority as president. The first to be called in a sequence determined by national lottery will be... Yeah, and to be clear, like, this is fake. Joe Biden did not say this. You know, there is not going to be a draft. Um, But I think it shows you just how persuasive this can sound. So it's interesting. As someone who spends hours listening to Biden, I can tell a differentiation. I can see how, though, if you're clicking through on social media, right, and you don't really spend hours listening to Biden in a given week, it it could it could fool you. Well, and and without the video, right? I mean, it's just different. I mean, hearing him, it clearly doesn't sound the way Biden sounds now, but it's pretty close. And I could see how that could, you know, really throw. lot of people off seeing it just come through your feeds. Right. Sort of for the casual listener, if you don't. And I think that's the kind of that's where the the technology is now. It's not perfect. But exactly thinking about this stuff sort of appearing in your feed, right, and you're sort of scrolling by, you're hearing it like you're not sort of maybe in the most like analytical mindset, um, you you might buy it. And to be clear, uh, when Pisobia created this video and and presented it, he, he said this was created by AI. What was his point of doing it? Well, so what he said is, you know, we we created this, we 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 scripted this, and then we used AI to create it um, as a what he called it a sneak preview, coming attractions, a glimpse into the world beyond. You know, he basically said this hasn't happened, but it could happen. It's going to happen, and I do think there is something that's very visceral, right? Especially when you see this as a video, mm. even if, even if you are told that it is fake, there's something really like disconcerting. There's so many risks, though, I feel, to that, right? Like, I mean, if this is a sneak preview, that makes me think of, like, the 2024 election around the corner and how much people were already just getting their news through Facebook feeds and, you know, different social media channels. I mean, I can't tell you the amount of people I met who, when I would ask what their news source is, especially in, you know, 2016, would tell me it was it was Facebook. Well, and, and that's what well, that's this is what's happening here. It's like, I think the, the risk here is that this stuff becomes decontextualized, right? So, yeah. like, this video was presented as this is not real, 
But tons of people went on to share it on Twitter without saying this is not real. You know, saying like, oh. look, how terrifying mm-hmm. is this? Biden is declaring the draft. We saw a similar thing happen just this past week um, where actually a, a, an open source investigations researcher, you know, everyone everyone was waiting around this week waiting to see if Trump was going to get indicted, right? Uh-huh. And, you know, this open source investigations researcher was like, you know, I'm going to use one of these new tools. Um, it's called MidJourney. It's an image creator. You can put in just like a couple words and it'll create you know, often a pretty realistic looking photo. And so he created a bunch of of fake images imagining Donald Trump getting arrested. Then he kind of went down a whole path, like Donald Trump in jail. And, you know, immediately these got spread just well, you know, well out of his control and without any, again, without any context that this was not real. And so that's, I mean, that I think we've worried for a long time about the idea of these deep fakes, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, it's something people have been warning about. But this technology is getting better. It's more available. And we're starting to see adversarial uses of, of this kind of technology. There was an investigation late last year um, by the research company Graphica. They found a set of pro-China bots on Twitter and Facebook that were posting these fake news videos that used AI-generated anchors. Mm. Now, that campaign was pretty small, and it didn't seem to have much of an effect. But I think it just shows you the door is open to how this can be abused. Yeah, I mean, I was going to say, we've been talking about AI-generated potential deepfakes uh, for at least the last five years. You know, this isn't 100% new. It's just sort of the technology that's become new. Because I remember in the 2008 campaign, there was a video from someone on the Clinton campaign that was doctored, that got spread around very quickly. We actually had to go to the actual hard video cassette tape to like go and see what the actual thing that had been said and people had to correct a lot of stories so it's a it's a cautionary tale for us but you know it we're less the filter now and a lot of people are going to be getting this information straight to their social media feeds and those companies are going to need to be responsible well, we've seen congress totally unable to be able to get them to you know create any guardrails around this sort of thing One of the questions I have for you, Shannon, is, you know, you talk about kind of like the widespread use of this now. Is it that making these is easier now than it has been in the past? Like, I don't have to be an expert. I can just sort of use very basic tools to create a fake image. Yeah, that's exactly it. I mean, so so first of all, the technology has just improved a lot. Like it's a lot better. Even I mean, you know, think about when um, Midjourney and Dolly—that's the open AI like image generator—kind of you know first started to go viral last year. You know, a lot of the you know earlier versions, like if you were making a person, they were really bad at making hands, right? Like you would uh-huh. have like ten fingers or like weird hot dog fingers. Um, and that's like that's already improving, right? They're getting better, so that so they can make more realistic images. Um, and and the, which is also true for things like audio and video um, and and text, which we'll get to in a moment. But it's also the other, I think the really important point, like to Domenico's point of like, we've been worried about this for years now. What feels different now is these things have become consumer products. Like there are just apps you can get now, you know, easily on your smartphone that can clone a voice, that can create realistic pictures and videos and text. And so that, you know, it's kind of this democratization of these tools. And now they're kind of in the hands of anybody. And again, like it doesn't have to be perfect, but like you can pretty quickly create one of these and like slap it online. 
So I talked to a man named Ethan Malik. He's a professor at Wharton, the University of Pennsylvania's business school. And, you know, he's been playing around with these tools a lot. He teaches entrepreneurship and, you know, he sees AI as a really important tool that his students are going to have to learn to live with. Um, but he's also, you know, he, he himself has been wondering about, like, what are the downsides? And so as an experiment, he used the, the chatbot, ChatGPT. He used an app that can clone your voice. And then he used another app that takes a photo and turns it into a video. And he was able to make a deep fake video of himself. It just took him just a few minutes. It cost him $11. Uh, and, you know, I think that just that sort of demonstrates just how how easy this is. And, you know, again, he's an enthusiast about AI, but he also told me he's worried. I think people aren't worried enough about this, actually. And I'm somebody who's actually pretty, you know, pro this technology in a lot of ways. But I also think that we're not ready for the social implications of being able to spoof people at scale. We've thought about this for like celebrities and newscasts, but the idea that you could do this for anyone is sort of a new phenomenon. So, Shannon, earlier you mentioned text. Um is text kind of the easiest form of AI content right now for, for folks to kind of dupe other people all over? Yeah, I mean, that's what there's, there's a lot of concerns. When it comes specifically to how this could be abused by bad actors, um, the folks I've talked to are really concerned about this basically driving down the cost of creating persuasive propaganda, of, you know, create, conducting influence campaigns. You know, it could mean... You say you have a troll farm, you know, of bots that you want to, you know, be pushing out messages, um, you know, t- targeting specific groups of Americans. We saw this in 2016, right, with the Internet Research Agency, you know, targeting Black Americans, saying, you know, neither party, you know, has your best interests in mind. You should just not vote. You know, back in 2016, the Internet Research Agency had a reported budget of like over a million dollars a month, you know, employing people writing these posts and, and putting stuff out there. With AI-generated content, you could imagine you don't need to employ that many people. You know, that kind of widespread campaign could be in reach for somebody who is not a state-sponsored actor, right? And so you just can kind of imagine that it's there's this just becomes more available. We're going to see more of it. And it's going to be very hard to determine if something you are reading online, you know, is written by a, a computer program. We kind of touched on 2024 earlier, but it it seems like all of what you're describing, Shannon, is likely to be an enduring force in our politics. And one of the questions I have is, you know, from a p- political vantage point, Domenico, is how campaigns are thinking about this, how they can even navigate this space. Are they even prepared to deal with all of this? Well, I don't think they can control a lot of it. I mean, this is, uh, you know, a kind of new era. They're not able to really kind of filter a lot of things, just like the way we're not able to filter a lot of this kind of information. And we don't know what kind of bad actors there will be who are politically motivated, politically related, uh, whether they're, you know, sanctioned by a campaign or not sanctioned by a campaign. We've seen plenty of dirty tricks through the years. And I think that's going to become a huge scandal and, uh, you know, kind of almost inevitable that we're going to see something where some Somebody tries to play a dirty trick and, you know, make something stick to someone, whether it's to embarrass them or to embarrass the media or whatever. But this is a whole new landscape that I think we're all going to have to be on guard about. Mm -hmm. And I imagine it'll make our jobs a lot tougher as journalists, too, to navigate ahead of 2024. But all right, Shannon Bob, thank you very much for joining us on the show today. Appreciate it. Always happy to talk to you guys. And we're going to take a quick break. And when we get back, it's time for Can't Let It Go. 
And we're back. And it's time to end the show like we do every week with Can't Let It Go. That's a part of the show where we talk about the things from the week that we just cannot stop thinking about, politics or otherwise. And Claudia, you're back. So hey there. Good to have you back. Hey there. So, so guys, I will say before we wrap today's show, uh, I'm going to end on a somber note. And I just want to give some love to our colleagues across NPR. It has been a really, really tough week here at our network. Um, for those of you listeners who may not know, we had 10% of our colleagues who were laid off this week. And that includes the cancellation of four podcasts. Um, I will say uh, it, it was really disheartening news. I think it's disheartening for us here. And I, I know it is also for some of you all who listen. So I just wanted to share with you a couple of thoughts here. Uh, I think there's a lot of people who listen to our shows who think about entering the world of journalism, who think about entering the world of audio journalism in particular, and wonder, like, is there still room for me at, at this place? Is there still room for me here broadly in this type of work? Is there room for me to have a seat at this very table? And what I will say is that I have been at this network for a while. It is by no means perfect, but it is better because of the very people who keep pushing it to do better work. And so if this is the type of work you want to do, I just say, please don't give up. Journalism is an ever-changing, frustrating industry, but we need you, and I would say we need you to keep pushing us, pushing the institutions to be better. And we know that there's layoffs all over the country. We know mm -hmm. we're hearing of them and the thousands at tech companies and elsewhere. So we know folks are dealing with it. And so as you said, Asma, it has been a tough week, which kind of goes into my can't let it go. So I've needed a really heavy duty uh, distraction to get me out of the funk of thinking about <laughs> what's been going on this week yeah. in NPR in terms of these cuts. And so what I needed, the answer, my solution was one Vanderpump rules. Are you oh. folks familiar with this? <laughs> I was hearing a little bit about this from our reality watching, uh, TV watching so, core so, earlier, but yes. I don't know 100% about it. <laughs> yeah, so it's a re reality show. Seems like it's been on for. Ever. I've watched it since the beginning. I was super obsessed. So where do I go at times like this? A very trashy, low television place. Is which it is Vanderpump good or Rules. is it just like addictive? I think it's, I think it's, is it so bad it's good maybe? And yeah, I was going to say, this is, this is like a sociology lesson, uh, Asma. Is it good? Yes. <laughs> yes. It's like sometimes I ask myself that question too, yeah. but I got obsessed with this from the very beginning to the point where a girlfriend and I in the first few seasons flew out to LA. We went to the restaurant that's featured a lot uh, in the series, Sir, and it's run by Lisa Vanderpump and her husband. We ate there. So I dropped the show like it's been on forever because like several cast members got fired because of some racially driven comments they made or concerns about that. And I was like, I'm out of here. I'm not watching this trash anymore. But, but just in the last few weeks, <laughs> I came back because one of the mainstay cast member or, or couples on the show, uh, we learned that uh, one of the cast members, Tom Sandoval, had cheated on his longtime girlfriend on the show, Ariana Maddox. 
uh, with another cast member, Raquel, but they were able to hide it from the show for several months until recently. They just filmed the reunion. Raquel, I guess, maybe was able to film with them because she wanted to do some sort of restraining order against another cast member who she claimed alleged there was a physical assault because of the quote-unquote affair. So yeah, that's where I've been. Is that so much drama? Back to Vanderpump Rules. It is so much drama. Like yeah, how do they get paid? Like, what is the salaries? What is happening? (laughs) But yeah, this is where I go when when times are tough. I go to things like this, Vanderpump Rules. I hear you. I am a uh, reality TV show watcher myself. Not that one in particular. (laughs) I don't think I knew that. What's your favorite Uh, reality TV show? You know, there's a lot of bad stuff that I love to hate, like The Bachelor and uh, Love Is Blind and all of that kind of stuff. I was a big fan back in the day. My old roommate got me into um, America's Next Top Model. You know, with Tyra Banks. Oh, yeah. Tyra Banks was great on that. I loved that show. Yeah, very good. Very good. Uh, So what about you, Domenico? Well, I guess staying with a little bit of a kind of pop culture, media, movies and stuff. Um, there's this new movie called Air and it's about Nike's struggles to try to get oh. Michael Jordan to be their spokesperson in the 1980s. And it's kind of another buddy flick reunion with uh, Matt Damon and Ben Affleck. Um, oh. You know, they created Goodwill Hunting and they're back on screen. And then this is kind of before there were really influencers or where, you know, people were really made to be the star to sell a brand. And it was, you know, kind of difficult to actually get Nike totally on board with doing this. But the thing that I'm more can't let go of is not so much that, but the casting. Ben Affleck was at South by Southwest and talked about the fact that he asked Michael Jordan, you know, what he wanted out of this movie. Um, And, you know, Michael Jordan mentioned that, you know, his mom was a really key figure in his life and none of it would have happened without his mom, Dolores. And uh, Ben Affleck said, well, okay, well, who do you want to play your mom? And Michael Jordan drops Viola Davis, (laughs) which... So that's who they cast, right? Ben Affleck's, like, heart just, like, kind of sunk because he'd only written, like, one line for Jordan's mom. And he's like, I can't give Viola Davis one line. And not to mention, I have to get Viola Davis to even do this role. So he talks a little bit about, like, his effort then to have to get Viola Davis to do the part and to write in a whole lot more lines uh, so that she's a more significant character. But got it got it done. Point is, Michael Jordan wants, Michael Jordan gets, I guess. <laughs> All right. Well, that is a wrap for today. Our executive producer is Mathoni Maturi. Our editor is Eric McDaniel. Our producers are Elena Moore and Casey Morell. Research and fact-checking by our intern, Devin Speak. Thanks to Krishnadev Kalamar and Lexi Shapitl. I'm Asma Khalid. I cover the White House. I'm Claudia Grisales. I cover Congress. And I'm Domenico Montanaro, senior political editor and correspondent. And thank you all, as always, for listening to the NPR Politics Podcast.